0: Hey guys and welcome to Quality Shot. I'm extremely excited to be joined by cricket analyst, expert and writer, is how I like to say, uh, Jared Kimber. Of course you may recognise him because he's, in my eyes, pretty much everyone, anything to do with cricket, podcasts, ESPN Cricket Info and of course now recently as well, coming to YouTube and taking it by storm. Jared, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. No problem at all. Uh, so we're going to talk about something relatively specific for the viewers uh, today. So mainly focusing on, on Jimmy Anderson, a couple of pieces that Jared has done, please do check them out. Uh, Their articles and also I think video version as well on YouTube. So uh, please do check those out for reference and some of the stats and graphs, etc., are exceptional. So definitely worth checking those out. Um, but I wanted to get your, your view as well, Jared, on it, and, and I guess talk through it a little bit. So, I mean, Jimmy Anderson has been and has been revered as someone who is one of the potentially one of the best, you know, fast bowlers of all time in terms of volume of wickets. But when you delve into it, and obviously looking at your pieces, uh, especially in the, in the last few years, his second innings performances haven't quite reflected uh, some other bowlers such as you know your dale stains uh recently as well on top of quite a a plethora of other fast bowlers um in your article you outlined that it's probably a mixture of uh, into volume uh, of actually overs he's actually even though when he's part of a five-man bowling attack he's still bowling a lot more overs than another seamer who would be in a four-man bowling attack because of England's reliance on himself and also Broad as well. And um, I think they've bowled the most number of overs um, in the past few years of, of any Seema. Uh, so that's quite a damning stat, I guess, in terms of uh, workload. But you did also mention that in terms of the, the, I guess, tech side of things and also the sports science. He does have that to his disposal. Um, I actually just wanted to first ask you, how did this come about? Like, how did you actually think about putting this together, uh, this piece? Um, I think Jimmy Anderson
1: is probably one of the most fascinating cricketers because we have so much data on him. We've never had a a fast bowler bowl this much before. Um, And, you know, it's only recently that we started to get more and more records when it comes to first-class cricket. But uh, before that, if someone bowled as much as Jimmy Anderson, the majority of it was probably going to be in first-class cricket. So suddenly we have someone um, who, who is able to do that, and who has bowled this much. He's probably the most, he's probably the first truly professional, uh, what's a high-end sports science bowler we've ever had. So Glenn McGrath went through the academy and a lot of Australian bowlers have gone through the academy, but England took their sports science to another level, which you know India are now getting to as well, which Australia never have. And so almost everyone before Jimmy Anderson was amateur, (laughs) <laughs> or or they were what you would call semi-professional. So, you know, the, the great stat is that at one stage, only a couple of years ago, um, Jimmy Anderson and Darren Goff had played the same amount of cricket, but one of them had played the majority in first class and the one of them had played the majority in test cricket. And that's because Darren Goff was a Yorkshire employee, <laughs> right? He wasn't an England employee. Jimmy Anderson is an England employee. He's gone through the best sort of analysis and sports science uh, that we probably, you know, that we've ever seen in cricket so he's fascinating from that perspective um and and also he's probably one of the last outswing bowlers we've had in in test cricket so outswing bowling doesn't really exist anymore like you know yeah. you um there are bowlers <laughs> who can bowl an outswinger but you know for anyone who's o- over the age of 30 you know if you think of people like Damian Fleming and Matthew Hoggard and uh Sri Lanka had like a A bunch of them, you know, uh, New Zealand as well, always, you know, everyone was taught that was the most important skill. And so Jimmy Anderson comes from that era, but he's completely a modern bowler so much so that now he's a, uh, he's a wobble ball bowler Um, and the outswinger is really not his, even his bread and butter anymore. (laughs) You know, Uh, he came into test cricket bowling six outswingers in a row. Um, And I don't know the last time he bowled six outswingers in a row is probably setting someone up for, uh, uh, to fail. Um, And so there's a lot of information about him. And so when you look at, you, we can compare him to the handful of other bowlers who bowled late into their career. We can compare him to Dale Steyn. We can tell the story of how modern bowling has got a lot of easy uh, uh, since 2018, Seam bowlers are completely on top. You can tell the wobble ball um, story through Jimmy Anderson. He's probably the second major international player to to really work out the the wobble ball, you know, watching Muhammad Asif in the nets and basically stealing the delivery off him. <laughs> or borrowing, maybe is the best way of putting it. <laughs> Um uh, and you know, without Jimmy Anderson, the wobble ball probably wouldn't be as popular <laughs> as it is today because Mohammed Asif obviously you know left the game shortly after that. I think, I think that might have even been the year that he left the game. Um, yeah. and it was Anderson and the fact that Sky have better cameras and 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 do more coverage that allowed other bowlers, like I've talked to bowlers who just looked it up on YouTube. I'm like, oh okay, that's how you do it. Um, and so <laughs> you know he's he's almost the first, you know, incredible professional English cricketer. Um, and I do mean English, not professional county cricketer, because there are plenty of those. Um, there's sports science. There's the incredible amount of deliveries that he's bowled. The fact that he started as a white ball bowler, not being very good as a red ball bowler. There's a lot of story with Jimmy Anderson, and partly because he's just old, um, but partly because he has changed his career. In so many. And he, and he basically, you, you could make a strong argument that he started his career in probably the worst time to be a fast bowler in the world. And yeah. the history of the game, maybe, um, and he's and he might end it at the best time to be a fast bowler. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, not to mention the fact that also he's the only tailender I've ever seen who believes the reverse sweep is his best shot. Like, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot to unpack with someone like Jimmy Anderson.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I just wanted to quickly ask you about one of your points you made, where you said from 2018 onwards, it's now becoming a, well, it, from, since that period, it's become a lot easier for faster bowlers. Why, why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of th- reasons.
1: Um, I think we're probably now through the combination of white ball cricket, red ball bowlers are a lot more accurate than they used to be. Um, if you look back, we used to have a lot of 90 mile an hour bowlers who bowled everywhere. You know, guys like Nancy Haywood and Sean Tate and these sorts of guys who came through the system and they bowled fast. Um, you know, Billy Stanlake is exactly the similar kind of bowler and them and he's taller right mm-hmm. I mean I don't think we've ever had a bowler as tall as Billy Stanlake as fast as Billy Stanlake <laughs> yeah. right and he doesn't play test cricket and the reason he doesn't play test cricket is I've talked to first class cricketers about this they just wait for him now and that's because they're more used to facing faster bowlers right if Billy Stanlake ever managed to hit a line in a length consistently it probably you know it'll probably take 100 wickets quicker than anyone ever has at test cricket because I don't know how you face someone who's six foot 11 who bowls 90 miles an hour yeah. um you know that's He's considerably quicker than Mornay Morkel and considerably taller than Mornay Morkel. And Mornay Morkel was the most difficult player to face at his best. you know. So we have changed what we need to be. And Steve Harmison told me once that he thinks it's because in white ball cricket, you can't be inaccurate anymore. You have to be accurate. Mm. So I think that's a big part of it. If you look at Pat Cummins, we've never had a bowler as fast as Pat Cummins, as accurate as Pat Cummins. That's true, right. Yeah. So we've had faster balls than him and we've certainly <clears throat> had more accurate bowlers than him. Uh, but if you look at guys like uh, – I think the most, the best ones to look at are probably um, guys like Malcolm Marshall, uh, Dale Stane, Alan Donald. We, we just had a series uh, – sorry, we just had entire test matches where Pat Cummins didn't bowl a short and wide ball, right? D- Dale Stane did. Alan Donald certainly did. Uh, and part of the reason was that those guys were swing bowlers and you yeah. can't always control the ball when it's swinging. Pat Cummins is coming wide on the crease – He's angling every ball in at your stumps. And he's bowling with more often than not a wobble ball scene. Some balls are going to hit leg stump. Some balls are going to miss your outside edge at 90, 92, 93, 94 miles an hour, right? We've never had this before. So there's the first thing. I think that is huge. I think also analysis. If you look at um, if you look at someone like Kimar Roach and Stuart Broad, their careers are probably being ch- changed, maybe even saved in Broad's case by the fact that they started bowling around the wicket more to left-handers, you know? So I think we've gone from bowling 10% of our deliveries around the wicket to left-handers to 40% of our deliveries around the wicket to left-handers in a very short period of time. You know, this started beforehand. You only bowled to someone around the wicket. Um, If they were already on 180 and you'd run out of options, or (laughs) if it was someone that you knew had a weakness against a particular bowler around the wicket, there were very few bowlers like Andre Nell who existed, who liked bowling around the wicket. Uh, So, those those the analysis is certainly played a part the other one is the wobble ball it has to be a part because um it's really if you think about it there's not a lot about batter can do if you don't know so so what batters are doing is you can't follow the ball at 90 miles an hour right so any, basically anything over 80 miles an hour your eyes can't track it can't move quick enough your head can't move quick enough your eyes can't move <laughs> quick enough so what international batters do is they have this thing called a saccade, right? Where they watch it come out of the hand for about the first two or three meters, and then they look to where they think it's going to go, right? Which means in those first two or three meters, and also the bowler's wrist position, as the ball is coming over, they're trying to get all the information about what the ball is about to do. Okay, he's holding it for an outswinger, so this one's going to be an outswinger. Oh, it's come out of his hand, it started to swing. Oh, it's actually the seam's going the other way. This is going to slant in. Oh, he's run his fingers over it, right? Those are all the things that the very top-level batters um, manage to do. If you have a ball where it doesn't matter where any of those things, guys coming in like this, he's gonna do this behind the ball. And when it comes down, he doesn't know whether it's gonna go that way or yeah. that way. Right? What do you do? There's no sign, right? There's no, there's no signal. It's not, you don't get the thing where you know it's swinging a little bit, so you get no hint. It's literally gonna hit the pitch and it's gonna go one of two ways or straight ahead, right? So you basically got three options every ball. I think that is a huge, huge advantage to bowlers. It'd be really interesting to see if it continues. Um, I think there are probably some other things as well. I think the pitches are probably slightly better for bowling. I think after, you know, the 2000s, you know, from what, 2005 to 2015, uh, CEOs completely took over and went, we want five-day matches. And then I think there was a – there's an understanding afterwards that those five-day matches were dull as shit and no one cared, right? (laughs) Um, So I think there was certainly that – uh, there was a few pitches that were penalised for being too good for batting, uh, which may have also played a part. Um, I, I would like to think that this is a better era for, for fast bowling as well. But there are real signs that that's not the case, which is the fact that Ishan Sharma and Suranga Lakmal were absolutely two of the worst bowlers in the history of the game for a great percentage of their career. Um, and now they're, and they've and both become incredible over the last three or four years, right? that can't just be I'm not saying they couldn't mature um, and they haven't improved on their own but it does feel like if you if you took a bowler who I don't know played between 2013 and 2016 and was in their mid-20s and they did, they failed do you brought them back now and they're still fully fit and they've continued to work on their game my chat my guess is their bowling average is gonna be a lot lower now than it was back then just because things have changed um you know analysis helps at this stage the way that we set up analysis in cricket it helps bowlers more than batters right. Hmm. That won't always be the case, but at the moment, it helps bowlers more than batters. And so we know exactly where to put a ball for each particular batter now, from what side of the wicket. uh, you know We're learning more and more about that. So I think when it comes to bowling at 90 miles an hour, um, any slight advantage is probably going to weigh that in your favour. And uh, the red ball moves. The white ball doesn't move. So we haven't seen it in white ball cricket because white
0: balls don't do anything for you. Yeah that's so interesting actually that you said about because I, I feel like the general consensus from a lot of from quite a few fans anyway is that it's you know the game was definitely heading towards it being more of a like batsman centric like batsman friendly game but you make a good point about the analysis which is now there's so much footage etc you know exactly where to hand the ball and the wobble scene has made it a lot harder as well yeah um, the, the whole batting
1: centric thing i think um realistically the 2000s were the first time that in test cricket anyway batting was more dominant than bowling yeah. um, up before uh, I think 1940s and 1950s might've been the last time that you could, you could argue you could you would say that batting was more dominant than bowling. Um, so, you know, even though we talk about it being a batting game and all this, the bowlers have actually done pretty well. And then in the 2000s, a lot of things went wrong uh, for bowlers. DRS is another one um, that, that has probably helped uh, bowlers. And it's not so much DRS, the system, it's umpires being able to tell oh lots of balls hit the stumps oh they're not all slipping down the leg side um and also it's helped bowlers bowl fast bowlers ball bowl fuller because before they would bowl a little bit back of the length right um and now you realize there's no point bowling back at length you'll never get an lbw ever again you're much better off trying to make sure every ball hits the stump so um and and the the best example really of how much there's been a divergence between white ball cricket and red ball cricket and batting and bowling is that for the first time ever, the one day batting averages are higher than test batting averages, right? So we now come to an era where legitimately people are, it's a definitely a ball, a batting dominated game in one day cricket. T20 cricket is probably moving towards that as well. Um, But in red ball cricket at the moment, it's a a bowling uh, dominated game and mostly fast bowling.
0: Hmm. With, with the with the wobble scene, because you obviously mentioned and I'm uh, I'm a Pakistan fan, so Muhammad Asif was like a revelation when he came out, obviously, with mm. the other controversy with it, but in terms of the wobble scene, that was, as you said... When like, he wasn't taking steroids and fixing matches. <laughs> exactly, or what, did yeah.
1: he go through an airport with heroin or something? Or, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I know <really? laughs> when he wasn't doing those
0: things, water polo. No, he <laughs> really was.
1: He was a genius.
0: No, he was, yeah. I mean, he's just, it's a matter of shame. He's a, it's definitely a waste of talent, but uh, one thing that he's left us, which you mentioned, is the wobble scene, but as a cricket fan like when you saw that and the footage was it uh, like you know i just wanted to get your, your view on it when you first saw it did you just think this is so weird like what's he doing because he doesn't there's so much i guess uh, he's gambling really because he puts on a spot but you, there's such a specific like line length you to put that on to make sure you don't for example it might come into the to the batsman but you could drift onto the pads if it then you know seems it comes off the seam and then goes into the batsman um and do you think that the reason why now a lot of people, a lot of batsmen who play the ball late, like Kane Williamson, they are so good now in the Test ring. They're, they're definitely, I think, there's definitely more of a, um, I think, a narrative around playing the ball as late as you can in Test cricket. Is that because the wobble seam is now so prominent?
1: Um, no, I think that's probably <clears throat> also just to do with the fact that bowlers are quicker now than they've ever been before. Um... Uh, you know, and, and if you go back to what the way the LBW decision used to be, if you got on the front foot, chances are you weren't going to go out LBW. Right. So it makes sense in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s to plant yourself on the front foot. Um, and obviously the, the way that the bowlers came overcame that was bouncers at that time. And so then batters get helmets. You know, there's this constant sort of evolutionary struggle between those two things, isn't there? And um, I think playing late has always worked. Um I don't think that that is um you know the more time you give yourself there's two things it does it gives you more time to play the ball but it also means that the balls directly under your eyes if you're playing out in front of your body that's not yeah. the case um so yeah I, I think that that has probably played a part um, in all in, in that as well but I, I think that um I think that techniques were already changing before that um uh, so when I first saw the wobble ball seem, You know, you got to remember that we didn't know what it was. So, and Mohamed Asif wasn't exactly going around telling everyone, right? So, it was mentioned a little bit. um, uh, I think there was a South Africa series he might have played. I think it was South Africa or Sri Lanka, where um, clearly the term wobble ball was being used, right? And then, obviously, in England, there was a little bit more talk about it as well. But there was a, I think there was a bit of a feeling at that stage that it might be accidental, right? That, yeah, possibly, yeah. And we didn't know. And like even as recently as a couple of years ago, I still thought a lot of bowlers, it's really hard unless you're seeing a super slow-mo to see if the bowlers just got their fingers wrong. Like yeah. Basically, the, th- the stupid thing about a wobble ball is it's literally what every person in club cricket does. Yeah. The, di- yeah, the difference is that they're com- controlling it so that it's more often than not going to hit the seam. Whereas in club cricket, sometimes you do it so poorly, it doesn't even hit the seam, right? <laughs> um, and you're not doing it at 90 miles an hour. So I think there's, it was really hard, but I, I do think if you look back at, I don't know, 2005 through to 2014, I think a lot of seam bowlers were much better at having a dead straight seam. Right, and I think that's a really, really clear thing that happens. Whereas before, if you look at some of the older footage, you can see that bowlers had trouble keeping a dead straight stream. So obviously, cricket coaching had got to a level that almost no matter what pace you bowled, they could get you to have the seam straight up. If that's the case, then probably more and more of what we saw of uh, there was probably like almost a um, an overlap where some bowlers were trying to keep the ball dead straight. And it wasn't because they weren't perfect at it. And other guys were purposely not trying to keep the ball dead straight. So I think there was a bit of a confusion. And it probably wasn't until the fact that you had bowlers from all around the world doing it, that it really became a thing. I think when when Anderson did it and then other bowlers started following suit, I think that was about the point where... Um, we realise that there was a ball there, but because it is a confusing thing, um, it's not as easy. It's not like an off cutter. Like if someone's bowling an off cutter or a knuckle ball, one 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 slow motion will um, help you perfectly. There, do you know what I mean? Be able to go, oh, okay, yeah, these oh, fingers are on the side of the ball. Got it, right? Oh, look at that. He's holding the ball like that. That must be a knuckle ball, or it doesn't rotate when it comes out the hand, or it does rotate, right? Mm-hmm. With the with the with the with the wobble ball seam, you almost have to see someone do it. So, so for a while I thought Pat Cummins was doing it by accident occasionally because <laughs> he didn't do it all the time. And yeah. for he he went from seam up and then had them occasionally. And it was a conversation I had with Dan Breddock, where Dan Breddock was like, I don't think he's doing them by accident. Right. And and you that was the point. I think when I saw Cummins do it, I started looking at a lot of different footage of players. That's only really recent, right? Considering how old this ball now is. Um, but it did move slowly. Um, it moved slower than the doosra did. Um, uh, partly because, I think partly because there is a bit of a confusion with it. Like if you're bowling the doosra, it is very obvious that your hand and your wrist and your elbow position are all doing something completely different. Yeah. If you're bowling the wobble ball seam, maybe it's a mistake. Maybe it's right. Um, and it wasn't to the point where I think the majority of bowlers were doing it consistently that you're like, well, this can't be a mistake. You know, Sam Curran used to have an incredible seam position and now he does not yeah. That's not an accident.
0: Mm. It's so interesting as well because when you when you grow up in club cricket, they tell you make sure you've got your wrist behind the ball, you know, straight seam. And now the game's completely changed in the last few years. And saying that actually, sometimes as as it's more about your control rather than your and knowing what your what's coming out of your hand in terms of wrist position, rather than making sure the seam is up, but you know, is upright um, and bolted up, which is so, which is just crazy because it's just evolved so much. But it definitely is and I can see why you're saying now that from 2018 it's become more bowler friendly. Um, from a fan perspective, from your personal view, are you, are you happy that it's become now kind of, it's wrestled back into the bowlers favor in terms of like from a test match point of view, because you said that obviously the five match, five match test matches, a lot of them were not particularly exciting. Whereas now you might see test matches, you know, for example, we're England in India, series ending in three, four days, and it's potentially, uh, a lot more condensed, but it's potentially also more exciting.
1: Look, I I'm always on the side of wickets um, as a general <laughs> rule um, in my life. Um, look, I, I think there's been a bit of a correction. I think the batters are just starting to get their head up above the water again after mm. a really bad couple of years. Um, they will work out ways to play this. Um, they they you know they may not ever average forty like they did in some years, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was. Remarkable. And that's including tail enders. I think. I think, well, maybe it was 37 or 38. It was really high. Uh, we may never get back to that, but that's probably right. I think we got down to 25
0: yeah. one year.
1: Um, that's probably too low because that means that, you know, test matches aren't even making it to, to the fourth day that often. Um, there's there's a really interesting thing going on in basketball, which is once the three point people worked out that three points were worth more than two, which took basketball an incredibly long time to work out. Um everyone started sh- shooting three pointers. And what happened was that basically you either shot at the ring or you shoot outside. Um, and what what it means from a basketball perspective is, oh great, a lot of dunks and a lot of three pointers. And you think, that's awesome. The same way you think, awesome, we've got a bunch of 90 mile an hour bowlers rolling people in two days. It get, becomes less special when it happens every time though. Yeah. Right? And the other thing that happened in basketball is that you start to realize And and baseball's had a similar thing with home runs. There's more home runs than ever before. That means there's more people striking out than ever before, right? There's more wickets Mm -hmm. than ever before. That means there's less people making incredible innings because they're not out there, right? So there, there always has to be that balance. And I would say that, what are we, 2011? We haven't had as much test cricket over the last couple of years, obviously, with COVID. Um, It does feel like there's been a slight movement back towards the batters. Uh, I, I don't think the batters need to average anything massive. But so I think if you look at the history of cricket, somewhere between an average of 30 and 32 is probably the most exciting cricket, because it means that people are making big scores occasionally. And it means that the bowlers are consistently in the game. And that's kind of I think the 90s were a very good, uh, you know, forget the fact I'm from the 90s um, and mm-hmm. I've got a nostalgic view. If you look at it from a mathematical point of view and you look at the the way that Test cricket really grew in the 90s, I think it's probably fair to say that that was a very good era because the bo- there was a lot of good bowlers who did very well. The pitches were usually helpful to bowlers, but people still made runs. And I think that's kind of what you want. You can get a bit too one-dimensional if you... Um, if, you, if the bowlers dominate or the batters dominate, um, I think it's probably, it's probably, or it's always safer to have the bowlers dominate because I think mm. that's more fun. Um, <laughs> once the batters start to dominate, it does get, you know, scores of 500, 600, 700. Just, it, it, it's okay in a test match, sometimes in Asia, where it happens in the first innings and then the second innings, everyone makes eight. But if that starts to happen in, you know, um, Australia and England, <laughs> you know, those pitches don't deteriorate in the same way. And so you just have terrible te- test matches. And I think that's what what happened there. Um, and, uh, you know, New Zealand's a really interesting one at the moment. You know, New Zealand's this incredible team and they've done it on the back of the most boring batting pitches on earth. Hmm. Um, uh, and so New Zealand's become this great team. But I wonder how many casual fans watch them just because they're like, oh, great. New Zealand's going to make 600 for four and they're going to take forever to do it as well. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely, yeah, New Zealand, uh, an interesting team, actually. A team, definitely not a team of individuals, that's for sure. Um, in, in terms of, uh, sorry, I've gone a bit left-field with it, but, um, but Anderson staying Stain comparison, because I wanted to get your view on that, because obviously you've done quite a bit of research and articles, etc. on it. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your breakdown of it, but in terms of when they were playing at the same time and going head to head, in terms of second innings uh, averages, I mean, Anderson's was uh, was quite poor. I think it was uh, an average of 100. Um, That's only the last couple of 20. years, though. That's not comparing
1: yeah. him to Stain. So Stain exactly, was, yeah. was on his skateboard by that point.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was, you said, but back in 2018, which I think Stain was pretty much almost done. In terms, I don't even know if he, he was playing at that point, was definitely towards the tail end. That was, that was an average of 48. But you, you you made a good point that in terms of the balls that they're mainly using, obviously Anderson's using the Jukes and, and staying mm-hmm. in the cooker bar for the most part and, and staying in the back end, being able to use the older ball was a lot more proficient in using it. But what was your, what's your kind of view on comparing the two in terms of, if you look at it, uh, as you said, like there's no point comparing it in the last couple of years or staying from the start of his, but it, when they were both playing and both at their peak, what kind of, I guess, differentiates the two?
1: Well, uh, look. I think it's important to say when they're both at their peak. Dale Steyn was probably maybe in the top five fast bowlers we've ever had. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, it, it'd be really interesting to see where he ranks all time. But when you factor in that Dale Steyn's career overlapped with the best this incredible batting era, yeah. and he managed to average low twenties, um, is phenomenal. But there are there are so many different aspects to it all. So for one thing, for at least a chunk of Dale Stane's career, South Africa purposely put out wickets that favoured bowlers uh, in a way that England never really did. England have wickets that favor bowlers, but they never went out of their way to do it. Whereas what they did in South Africa was they literally, especially in fast captaincy, they said, let's just make the wickets really spicy because we can probably handle the spicy wickets better than overseas players can, right? And the bowling average is um, the bowling averages are very low for South African seam bowlers, mm. um, partly because uh, they were incredible at home in those conditions, which Anderson obviously had as well. The difference is that Stain was pretty much great ever, except weirdly England, where perhaps the juke ball didn't quite, it didn't quite do what he wanted it to do. Um, but he was basically great ever. whereas Anderson doesn't. He has periods where he's great in Australia and periods where he's great in India, and periods where he's great in other countries, but he also has periods where he's not. So I think if you if you're looking for the best peak bowler, mm. um, Dale Steyn was one of the has one of the lowest averages in the history of Test cricket and one of the hardest eras to bowl. Yeah. Mm. And Anderson did not have a great average in that period, right? So I, th- I think there's that. I think they are um, weirdly they are both shorter bowlers, uh, which you know, I think we are going more and more towards taller bowlers in cricket. I think the speed gun probably kept us away from tall bowlers for a while because they don't, they didn't, it wasn't set up to pick up the taller bowlers. But I think you can see now with whether it be Jason Holder or anyone like that, if you're a taller bowler and you can hit and you have any skills at all, I mean, Kyle Jameson's basically unplayable at 83 miles an hour. Um, It doesn't matter that he doesn't bowl at 90 miles an hour. Um, So, yeah, so I think that I think the big argument with with them is it it really depends on what you value as greatness at a certain Mm -hmm. point right? So if if you're looking at who you're going to pick between the two, I would say that there was uh, Jimmy Anderson has never been a better bowler than Dale Stane at his best. But if Jimmy Anderson has a 19 year career where he ends up averaging 24.5 and Dale Stane had basically whatever it was a 10 or 11 or a 12 year career where he averages 21, who do you pick? Right? You want the bowler who bowls the extra years, don't you? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you don't want the guy who was better. <laughs> yeah. It's a really, really interesting thing. Um, and the other thing was that Dale Stane was pretty much good very early on in his career. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy Anderson wasn't. Jimmy Anderson struggled for a long time. So if you take if you take the best 10-year periods from each of them, maybe Jimmy Anderson has a better 10-year period than Dale Stain. Um, but yeah, they are, you know, they're there are different kinds of bowlers. Obviously, uh, Jimmy was quick when he was young, but he was never as quick as um, uh, as stain was. Um, you know, uh, they, had, you know, stain was a proper menace. Uh, you go back, especially that early part of his career. You know, he had that sort of Mark, Malcolm Marshall ability to hit players a lot, which a lot of short fast bowlers do. It's very, it's easy to get out of the way of a tall fast bowler because the ball yeah. bounces up. But When it's getting at it's you, you yeah. yeah, you have trouble. Um, Jimmy Anderson couldn't do that. So, you know, I remember years ago, someone asking about, uh, someone was very upset saying that, you know, Vernon Philander and I think it was Ryan Harris had very similar records at a certain point in their career. Yeah. And they now very upset that I thought Ryan Harris was a better bowler. And I, <laughs> and I said, basically, it comes down to this. Ryan Harris can bounce you out and he can beat you mm. with pace and he can beat you with skill. Vernon Philander can only beat you with skill, right? Mm. So in that, again, that is something that, Stain has a huge advantage over Jimmy Anderson with the uh, the fact that he could really intimidate batters. The fact that he could beat them with raw pace, and he could beat them with skills. And his skills weren't probably quite as um, fine tuned. I mean, a- Anderson, Stuart Clark, Vernon Philander, Muhammad Asif, these guys, their skills are on a different level. Stain never needed to be on that level because he had a pretty good outswinger. Um, mm. He was skillful enough at his pace, um, and he was he could hit you. Right. And those sorts of things are probably making a slightly better package um, than Jimmy Anderson. But where Jimmy Anderson is incredible is once you get over 32, you're not supposed to be good at fast bowling. Right. It's actually the data on bowlers when they get over the age of 32 in test cricket is pretty good. And that's because the only ones who ever do it are absolutely truly great. You don't even get mm. the option to play. If you're looking at a bat, a, you know, if you're looking at batting averages for players over the age of 35 or Fast bowling averages for people over the age of 32, you're looking at just guns, right? Because if you're a 31-year-old fast bowler and you're average, right, and anyone, you're just going to get dropped. You're not even going to make it beyond 32. So to think that Anderson then did what Stain couldn't do and wouldn't even be able to do, which is have this secondary career, and the fact that he's been so good at it, partly that is um, conditions based, because what stain would what Peak Stain would have been like if he bowled in the last four years would be uh, would is one of the great hypotheticals of all time, I think. Um, you know, putting I'd love to see some of the bowlers who were absolute great bowlers but bowled in very good batting eras, like suddenly appear in the last three years and see what they would have done on these pitches. But um, but yeah, um, So I I think with that, you have to say that Anderson is an absolutely incredible creature um, and what he's been able to do um, and go on. And, you know, that puts him up there with Courtney Walsh, Glenn McGrath um, and Richard Hadley. I would say that he probably has Walsh covered now. Mm. Um, I think McGrath probably still has Anderson covered. I have, you know, um, I, I just think, especially since a lot of his career overlapped with the good, one of the good batting eras as well, and he still didn't yeah. get hit. I think we know he was the next level. Um, and Richard Hadley is, you know, maybe the most effective one-man bowling attack we've ever had. He's um, certainly seen bowling mural. He's probably the only other guy that comes close. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anderson's probably third out of the fourth there, and that's a great um, uh, place to be. But again, that shows you the difference between him and Stain when you look at, like we we're, we're talking about staying potentially being a top 5 bowling uh you know talent of all time you know guys with over 200 test wickets um it's uh, Anderson will end up with the most seam bowling wickets of all time but I don't think he's in these in that top 5 discussion um when you factor it all in now if he plays for another 3 years and he continues to average about 20 hmm. At what stage do you say, okay, at his peak, he was never better than Malcolm Marshall at his peak. He was never better than Richard Hadley at his peak. He was never better than Dennis Lilly. All those things might be true. It doesn't matter if he has a 22 year career, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, uh, taking wickets and his bowling average keeps coming down. It just doesn't, does it?
0: Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Um, what's well, your my favorite. So in my mind, he always be number one, but I'm not going to discuss it with you because you might destroy me with stats. So I don't want that. um, but uh, Hogard Hoggard versus Anderson, you mentioned it in your article because that they were at the same age, same average, and like same time in their career. And obviously, like, why do you think England trusted Anderson to then carry on and now he's had a phenomenal career? Hoggard, I mean, yeah, you know, obviously it obviously might not have worked out, uh, probably wouldn't have happened how it did with Anderson, but you know, you never know. Uh, do you do you think there was a specific reason behind it? Like, did you when you're doing your your kind of compiling your stats and looking into it, did you find anything as to why England weren't as set on sticking with Hoggard?
1: Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of different things. So yeah, it is interesting that uh, when they were, you know, early thirties that a similar average and Hoggard was just dismissed. Right. They just, Mm. it comes back to my 32 year old thing, right? He he was around that age and they just went, "Ah, he's got nothing to give us. I think that some of it has to be their physicality. Right. So Anderson was a, it was clear at the age of 32 that Anderson did not have a very old 32 year old body. Right. So if you compare him to, you know, Ryan Harris or Vernon Philander or Hoggard, those sorts of guys, you look at their bodies and you're like, you know, this is, this is probably not going to, they're not going to age out as well as gracefully. Right. So I think that's a factor. I think. Work ethic and improvement is a factor. I think Hogarth was absolutely brilliant, but Hogarth basically, from my perspective, and I've never talked to him about this, but from my perspective, I think he he worked out how to bowl outswing brilliantly, and he's like, "That's what I do, and I will continue to do that." Whereas what we know with Anderson is he started as an outswing bowler, he then developed the inswing. We now have the wobble ball. Obviously, he has you know he has uh, variations within all those different things as well. He is. He's a grumpy, angry guy, but he's also someone who is very, very dedicated to getting just that little bit better all the the time. But I just think that the generations were changing as well. I think that Holgar was dismissed as much as anything because that was kind of the last of the amateur era, amateur English sort of era, if you know what I mean. Like that was the era where they just went, oh, he's had a good run. We'll get someone else in. Whereas now I think we're, you know, if you look at Anderson, his path is really following Tom Brady and Serena Williams and Roger Federer. What I thought AB DeVille might do, although he's nicked off, but it might be Kyron Pollard who does it or Chris Gale, right? Where I think now you're just like, well, we can't replace Jimmy Anderson, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the other problem with Hoggard is that they probably went, well, we have a Jimmy Anderson. Do we need a Matthew Hoggard as well? But mm-hmm. when you look at as good as Chris Wokes has been, no one thinks he's going to replace him, especially overseas. Yeah. Right? And so I think things have changed a little bit in the way that we think about players and age, um, because sports science allows us to stretch things out a little bit more. Hmm. So that magical thirty-two number, I don't think. You know, there there are always going to be bowlers who are just gone. Um, you know, you your knee joints wear out, and your ankles wear out, and your back continues to break, and your shoulder and all the things that fast bowlers have the strain on, we're not always going to be able over, to overcome it. But perhaps when we can overcome it, we'll have more chances to have people like Anderson. Like I look at someone like Trent Bolt. I don't, I don't know what age Trent Bolt is, but he looks to me like very light on his feet bowler mm, yes, um, who could continue to bowl unless unless he just can't do it at the pace he wants to do it. Um, th- there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to bowl in, to, you know, for quite some time. We also haven't got to the point where you know, baseballers have learned how to put pace on in their thirties, right? First time baseball pitchers have ever been able to do that is this era. Yeah. If we managed to do that with fast bowlers as well, we will be able to keep them even longer. And I think so a lot of things happen with Anderson where I think that, I think before it was like, ah, he's had a good run. Who's next? Whereas Mm. I think what happened with Anderson is it was probably the first era. And this is bad and good where, in, with cricket, we are like, we have to milk every last wicket out of Jimmy Anderson that we physically can until he is no longer Jimmy Anderson. Um, and then I think a lot of it was getting lucky. I, let's say they flipped it, right? And they decided mm. that Hoggard was their guy and Anderson wasn't. Well, we know what they would have missed out with Anderson if they flicked him at the age of 32. My my guess is that Hoggard wouldn't have gone on to have a brilliant yeah. career and still be one of the world's best bowlers at the age of 39. <laughs> right, he's just You know, I mean, he's let him uh, – I'm not having a go at him. He's a professional athlete and he's still yeah. playing. He's a larger lad than he was when he played.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he's got his own meat business, I think. <laughs> yeah. He's got his own yeah, barbecue
1: business, isn't it, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And I think there's certainly an element of that kind of personality with Hoggard, right? Yeah. But I do think that a lot of different things went together. But I think the bigger argument I was, I was trying to make is that we used to just dispose of really good players because they were of, of an age that we didn't really – Trust, right? And what we don't do now is that. What we do now is go, okay, how are we gonna get the absolute most out of it? So you look at someone like Mitchell Stark, if if Australia gets another couple of test bowlers coming through, my guess is they would say to Mitchell Stark, play IPL, play one day cricket and play T twenty cricket. We don't need you as a test bowler anymore. But we want, you know, you know, I mean Mitchell Stark is a Jasper at Boomer level talent white ball bowler. And we just saw him go for sixty runs. In a in a final um in T20 cricket. Like the man doesn't bowl enough in this format. And we know when he used to, he was unplayable, right? Yeah. If Australia really want to be a dominant team going into all these World Cups, having Mitchell Stark as an absolute white ball specialist would be ideal. Mm. So in the past, what would happen is you'd look at this and go, Oh, uh, you know, if he has a couple of bad years in Test cricket and occasionally gets smacked in a T20 game, they just phase him out. They don't need to do that anymore. Right? Mm. They were. They, we, we're thinking now. We're working these things out, and you can have conversations with the players as well and be honest. Like Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad wanted to play white ball cricket, right? They are better at red ball cricket because they aren't playing white ball cricket.
0: Yeah, they concentrate on one thing, right? It's like a yeah, yeah, and
1: so I think all those things come about, and you know, Jimmy Anderson not having to worry about other things um and literally just focusing on getting himself fully fit to bowl the next over. Hoggard's era was never going to, I don't think was probably going to allow him to do that. If he played until he was 40, he might've got to that era. But the early part was they were just getting there. All those things matter, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, And just lastly, actually, then, so I don't want to keep you too long, Jared. Thank you for your time is uh, you you talked about sports science and also a little bit about the analytics and, I talked to Benny Howe, who um, you know recently played for Birmingham Phoenix in the hundred and Gloucester player as well. Has and is also, I think, in Noble Derby as well with Banger Tigers. But he's he like you, I guess, has got a little bit of a uh, an interest in baseball. So he did a season. Well, I think he did a summer or a season in Australia, if I'm not mistaken, playing baseball to help with his slower balls and basically delivering. I think he said he's got about eight different slower balls, um, which are all different variations, which is really cool. But he said baseball, he found, is a lot more forward-thinking in terms of analytics and data. They were kind of eons ahead of cricket. Um, but then when he went to the 100, I talked to him again, and he said that he felt that the 100 had helped push cricket along in terms of the analytics and stats, um, driven-based, I guess, you know, tactics. And that, we see England doing it a lot with Owen Morgan, for example. They've got their signs, etc., and their own um, statistician or you know, analysis at every match. Do you feel that cricket is now starting to train in the right direction? Do you think it is behind other sports and needs to catch up? Or are we now in a position where given the hundred and other franchises, we're pretty much up to scratch?
1: Look, baseball was a sport where the information, the pitch by pitch information was available. Um, And so when Bill James and the sabermetric community come along in, you know, late seventies, early eighties, they can do all this information. Right, they can literally just look it up and work things out, and that still took 20 years to get to Moneyball. Right, it's not like these things are instant, so baseball was ahead of all the sports, realistically. Um, just because they worked that out, so you know, you've had huge movements in basketball. You know, I talked about basketball before where they shoot, the basketball was changed. the amount of times they throw the ball in the NFL has changed, where they um, attempt goals in football has changed, right? All these things are data-driven. Cricket is certainly of that level. I think for Benny, um, he was playing for Gloucester, not exactly the hotbed of cricket analytics, and he wasn't getting as many um, contracts in leagues that he should have been playing in um, uh, beforehand, and I think that's very, very uh, fair. And so I think that you know there was certainly a there, there was certainly a case where he probably was in the worst of cricket um, at a certain point, and then he goes to Birmingham Phoenix and he sees what Dan Weston is doing at Birmingham Phoenix and whoever else was working over there at that time, and it and things did change uh, very quickly. I think that's fair to say. Um, but yeah, look, we're still a long way behind. There's some great baseball stuff that I just want to bring across, across to cricket. There's some great basketball, baseball, foot, uh, football stuff that I want to bring across to cricket. There's some great cricket specific stuff that I think we could do, be doing a lot better. Like the, the very basic thing that I've said for a long time is the, one of the reasons that analysis is much better for bowlers than batters is because almost all the footage we have of bowlers is from behind the arm, right? Now, I can pick a wrong one from behind the arm. Fucked if I can pick it wrong and if I'm facing one. Right, unless I've actually unless they've pitched it short enough that I've seen it spin in, chances are I'm not picking that thing. Right, from behind the arm, I could pick Rashid Khan's wronging. Right, not all the time, some of them, um, and that's where all our footage is from. And so when I t- when I was doing analysis with teams, teams like, oh, this is great, thank you, thank you, thank you. But the batters are like, can you show me this guy from out the front? That's a really simple thing that we just hadn't thought about. Right, which is. Um, uh that we it's a great angle for the tv cameras but not a great angle for analysis so there are really simple things that we can do in cricket but i think things are moving um at a very very fast rate i think um uh we're we're still in a period where a lot of hobbyists are doing it but i think teams are working it out i think leagues are working it out um but I will say this: It's funny that Benny said that. When I was first contacted about the hundred, I was I was asked if I wanted to do like a, a proper stats website for the hundred, and uh, you know it was going to be like the sorts that you see in the basketball and and baseball. And then I, and then I was told they're going to have seven analysts per team. And it's going to be the most forward-thinking league in the world, and in the end, I think each team had two analysts. I think the women's teams have one analyst. I could be wrong. Maybe they had two as well, but I'm not sure if they did. So, Eve and 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 I, you can go back. Big Bash was like, yeah, what you wait? To, we're going to get spatial tracking data, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. It's like, and the ICC a couple of years ago, we've got exit velocity, and we've got this, and we've got that. It's like, yeah, but you still, you, you don't you don't have any actual actionable information to help cricket teams, right? we're getting there is I suppose what I would say. Um, I think one thing that will really help and is starting to happen is a lot of the companies that work with the baseball teams are working out the crickets, a big market. So I talked to one of them, uh, not that long ago and said, you know, I'm, I'm working with a cricket team at the moment. They'd like to know how much it would cost for you to, to give them this piece of equipment. And they said, um, it won't work for cricket at the moment. Someone else has already asked. Um, but we're we're developing it. I talked to another company that was selling another bit of equipment, and they were like, "Yeah, we're ready to ship. We we don't know why no one in cricket hasn't bought it yet, but we've already thought that cricket is our next market." Those sorts of things are going to really help. You know, like we've got the smart bat meters now, and we've got the the stickers on the bat, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but just from a real you know, normal, normal side of things. Um, once the, the technology companies are already working with other sports, start going, well, wait a minute, this is a billion dollar sport over here. Why don't we at least try and sell some stuff to them? I think that would be a big difference.
0: No, I agree. No, thank you for that. That was a really good insight actually as well. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think hopefully, hopefully cricket is trending in the right direction, as you said. Um, that's all from me. Is there anything you want to touch upon Jared? Um, thanks for being on. No, no um, that was great. Thanks
1: for, yeah, my headphones are gone.
0: That's
1: <laughs> Don't mind me. That's Pause right. <laughs> um, no, no. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, if you're interested in anything I've said here, as you said before, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got podcasts, uh, I'm on TikTok. I don't know, wherever you want to find. I've got an <laughs> emailer. Um, I'll, be, I'll be covering the, uh, what am I covering next? I'm covering New Zealand, India test series, and then I'm covering the ashes. Um, so I've got a big seven weeks of sleeping at odd hours.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And and also you've got uh, a couple of green room discussions going on as well, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, I don't see any other people doing that. From what I can no, see, it, so. it's, it's quite interesting. I, mean, I did the, one of the Reddit AMAs early on because the Reddit people kept asking.
1: And I, I, I don't think I was the first sort of known cricket person to do it, but yeah. I was probably about the first one to do it regularly. Yeah. And a lot of my friends don't feel comfortable with it. I think they're mm. afraid they're going to be asked a question they don't know the answer to, but that yeah. happens like all the time. Um, but I got used to doing them through the Reddit AMAs. And then when I started my Patreon, I made it part of my Patreon as well. And then when the technology and then and when Clubhouse first exploded, hmm. I was over there early on. I really liked Clubhouse when, when I first went over. Um, some of the cricket chats there were really, really good. And um, I just started doing it there. And it's for me, it's not particularly hard. I, I suppose I also did them with um when I had when we had our film out we traveled the country and I did Q and A's and and so I'm quite used to it, but um, I really enjoy it. I think it worked. It's a bit like, it's a bit like a lot of things. If you do it on Twitter spaces, too many people come in and every second question is about Virat Kohli um, or or (laughs) Bubba or, you know, Steve Smith um, and, or Kane Williamson actually probably now more than Smith. But um, when you, when you have a small sort of devoted audience, they kind of know the questions that you're going to give good answers to you. Yeah. It's almost like you train the audience and you know, Spotify green room. I probably only have a couple of hundred followers, but they know the sort of questions that I'm going to answer quite well. Yeah. Um, and so it ends up being a, a really good chat. Look, I, I just really enjoy doing it and then we make it into a podcast. We weren't sure if it would work as a podcast um, cause it's just me. Well, it's me mm-hmm. and, the, and the people asking questions, but yeah. Um, I, I just said to my producer, let's just try it. And, it's been incredibly popular. People just absolutely love it. So, yeah. um, you know, really happy to be able to do it. And, may, and and people just like being able to chat to someone about cricket. Um, you know, <laughs> a lot of the questions we get are from people who don't live in cricket countries, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. so, so on Patreon yesterday I had, or the other day I had a chat with a, a woman who grew up in um, South Africa in Italy. And um, she now lives in Canada. She's a massive cricket fan, cricket player. She's like, I don't have anyone to talk to about this sort of stuff. <laughs> you know, and so you do get... Those sorts of people. And there's also, there's a real growing uh, European to a certain extent, but really an American and Canadian audience of people who are non-traditional cricket people. So, you know, they're not like you and me and they move to another country and, um, uh, you know, they're not, you know, they're not ethnically Indian or Australian or they don't have an Australian dad or an uncle or whatever. Do you know what I mean? We're talking about people who just like sport. Somehow they found out about cricket and next thing you know, they're – uh you know, they're on my, on my um, Q&A asking questions. And there's quite a few of them in my Patreon, actually, who'd like to ask questions privately. Um, I mean, Wright Thompson, the, the famous ESPN writer, he's like that. You know, occasionally he'll just send me a really, really basic cricket question because he just needs his knowledge to get to that next level
0: so he can understand yeah. why this is a thing. No, no i think it's a great concept so um yeah guys do check it out and i'll put as i said i'll put all your social media links and youtube just put my link tree in otherwise you'll be linking for eight hours <laughs> i might do that yeah i might do that uh, but thank you jared for being on um i really appreciate it's it fantastic to have your expert analysis and opinion on uh, on this it's been a great chat so thank you for taking time out of your day uh guys do please remember to like the video and subscribe to the channel and of course i as i said i will put um jared's uh, link tree in the description do go over to his youtube as well i really enjoy it and do uh check it out subscribe like the videos all that good stuff and he's got a Patreon as well which sounds like he's got some cool perks uh thank you very much guys stay safe and well and i'll see you on the next video